And now, Frank Miller's top 10 weird preoccupations in the spirit. Number 10, what the underside of a shoe looks like. Number 9, the word soon. Number 8, the difference between the pronunciation of Hercules and Heracles. Number 7, coming up with henchman names that end in S. Number 6, repetitive internal monologues through voiceover. Number 5, a word I can't say on Geekvolution. Number 4, Nazis. Number 3, women attracted to men who treat them like dirt. Number 2, men attracted to women who treat them like dirt. And number one, eggs. So start ignition, count to zero. I just want to be a superhero. Oh, 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 oh. Spoiler warning. The following is an in-depth analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. I'm going to start off with two statements that absolutely should not go together. I really like this movie, and it doesn't work at all. The plot is just a convoluted, thinly-veiled framework to hold all the scenes together. I don't like any of the characters I'm supposed to like, and none of them have a bit of humanity in them. The spirit, in particular, is a complete womanizer and does nothing beyond having superpowers and fighting the bad guy that makes him deserve the viewer's sympathy or makes him extraordinary. The movie looks fantastic, but it's all style and no substance. Now, these are the main reasons it was panned by critics. It has a 14% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert gave it 1 out of 4 stars, and Empire Magazine even ranked it number 32 on their top 50 worst movies of all time list. What's strange is that I agree with every one of those criticisms, and I still really enjoy this movie. I remember when I saw it in the theater thinking that it's really what superhero movies should have been. An original and imaginative movie, rather than one that parodies another film scene for scene, that seems like an all-out farce. They're not to tell a story, but to poke fun at comic book and superhero tropes. The Spirit is a dozen contradictory comic book archetypes, all blended together to create a bizarre, impossible, and unrecognizable world. Like, if everything in comic books all really existed in the same universe, rather than conveniently shifting subgenres whenever it needs to, this is what it would look like. I'm not real familiar with Will Eisner's spirit, but I've done a little research and found that his comics always had the same basic premise. A man everyone thought was dead who let everybody believe that so he could operate in the shadows as an anonymous detective called the spirit and had only been in suspended animation due to a mad scientist experiment but didn't really die and didn't have superpowers. But the spirit was a wild array of different kinds of stories, so instead of making a straight noirish detective story, Frank Miller threw every subgenre the spirit ever touched on into one big blender. It's noir, it's horror, it's mad scientist science fiction, it's mythology-based fantasy, it's screwball comedy, it's dark comedy, it's melodrama. Miller even added newer subgenres, like in the scene where Silken Floss orders one of the idiot clone henchmen to commit suicide with costuming and backgrounds out of a fantasy anime. And importantly, Miller doesn't do this seamlessly, nor do I think he tries to. All these ideas completely contradict each other. Each scene feels like a comic strip, each loosely connected and building a bigger story, and some clearly pay off ideas set up in earlier scenes but individually feel like their own pieces, as if Miller is deliberately trying to make the film feel like reading short newspaper comics. Most scenes have some kind of a punchline or snappy ending, even the less comedic ones, and it plays as if Miller is making things up as he's going along. 
If these were comic scripts and he hadn't thought the whole thing out before he started publishing them, he wouldn't have the luxury of going back and editing if he wrote something later that contradicted something earlier. So he would have to either let those contradictions remain or finagle half-baked explanations for them. Frank Miller isn't my favorite comic book writer, but he generally has an excellent command of storytelling. He understands narrative, he knows how to make an audience care about a character, and he knows how to construct a story to bring the reader along without losing us somewhere in the midst of the utter weirdness of the tale he might be weaving. So if Frank Miller, the man who gave us the Dark Knight Returns and what many consider the definitive run on Daredevil, writes a story that's both this insanely wacky, to the point where several scenes feel like they're out of old cartoons, especially when the spirit and the octopus are fighting in the mud and the octopus hits him with a toilet and a nine-foot wrench, I have a hard time buying that he didn't do that on purpose that he doesn't care that the story is all over the place, that he's intending something else besides trying to make a protagonist compelling. The question is, is Miller just making a wacky comedy with the same noirish green screen creative style he used on Sin City, or is there supposed to be more to it than that? If the movie isn't really about anything, could have been renamed as These Are a Few of Frank's Favorite Things, and his intention is solely to entertain and make a movie he wants to watch, then his only mistake was a commercial one. Whether you can enjoy his bizarre B-movie made on an A-list budget becomes a matter of taste, and given the general consensus of reviewers, the movie is clearly not accessible to a general audience. There can't be a real wide pool of people who enjoy a nonsensical, totally random movie about a superhero brought back to life by a crazed mad scientist looking for immortality and rambling on constantly about eggs, an audience that laughs at jokes like toilets are always funny, and thinks a bouncing foot with a guy's head on top of it is hilarious. Except, oddly, I'm in that pool because I found myself laughing with the movie all the way through. And I say with the movie because at least the majority of it is clearly not meant to be taken seriously. You've got henchmen getting killed in dozens of different ways, all so stupid that they're happy about it, and they have names like Logos, Pathos, and Ethos, the three things that Aristotle said were necessary for making a persuasive argument. But then there are several other identical clones with Oss names that get sillier and sillier until the very end of the movie, when two of them close the van doors behind them just before Silken Floss drives away and their shirts say adios and amigos. Importantly, a hundred of these guys put together couldn't make a compelling argument, and perhaps calling the first three that is a hint to us that Frank Miller isn't trying to make a point about anything either. You've also got Samuel L. Jackson dressed up like a Nazi. This is a straight-up comedy, and for my taste, a pretty entertaining one. In the scene where the octopus, dressed as a Nazi, has a long speech about death, how he has almost become a master of immortality, and how once he has the blood of Heracles, he's going to rule the world, he says, and then everything will start making sense. It's as if the film is coming right out and acknowledging that it's complete nonsense, to the point where characters realize it, are so used to it that they rarely feel the need to bring it up, and are completely unfazed by contradictions in their own universe. I really love how in this extremely stylized, heightened reality where everyone talks faster, more deliberately, more old-fashioned, and overly dramatically, the characters are really playing everything straight, even though nothing at all makes any sense. And it's only in the third act that the octopus comes out and says that. But, like, it's a given. Like, he's God's gift to the world that somehow the universe won't look like the disorganized, freaky inside of Frank Miller's head as soon as he's put in charge. Looking at it like that, it kind of makes the octopus the most likable character in the film. But he already is. This movie might as well have been renamed named a Crazy Sam Jackson Part 16, and it probably would have sold more tickets. He even says mother just before he blows up at the end, right before he has a chance to put the F-bomb after it. 
But this really is a world with no internal logic. In that same speech, the octopus talks about all the things people do to comfort themselves, about the fact that they're going to die, including making up mythology about gods and the afterlife. But gods apparently exist in this universe because he's going after the blood of Heracles, and he talks about Zeus. And he talks about it all in the same speech. Everyone seems to love the spirit in the first act. The women fawn all over him, but the men seem to also. One man comes up to him on the street and says, Marry me. But when Sans Serif throws him out a window, not wanting to believe he's Denny Colt back from the grave, he finds himself flailing off the edge of a roof and his pants fall down. And all the citizens below now think he's an idiot. One of them, in a cameo by DC President Paul Levitz, says... You'll believe a man can't fly. I know he's in a compromising position, but what happened? I thought everybody loved him. His pants fall down and now everybody turns on him? It's frustrating because it's hard to know if these inconsistencies are deliberate or not. And the cookie-cutter plot is so preposterous, I feel a little ridiculous questioning the logic of anything that happens at all. Take how the spirit is returned to life. The octopus is looking for a way to become immortal, and he's developed a serum that will at least give him a healing factor. This instantly gives the movie maybe more credibility than it ought to have if it's supposed to be a silly farce with no internal logic. After all, the spirit and the octopus are incredibly strong and nearly impossible to kill, meaning that their cartoon-level fights aren't because violence is just over the top and nobody gets hurt much in this universe, but because something makes these two more powerful than everyone else. If it was like Sin City, where the rules of what a man can and take are just different than in reality, we might not question things like uh, the thing I'm about to question. The octopus steals Denny Colt's corpse and injects him with the serum that gives him powers and brings him back to life. He then buries him in a graveyard where he's supposed to be buried and just waits. Now they're mortal enemies. The spirit is a superhero with the same powers he has, and he's the only thing that ever stands between the octopus and what he wants. The octopus injected Denny Colt because he didn't want to try it on himself first, though I'm not sure what possessed him to do it to a dead person, or why he thought it would both make a person super strong and bring them back to life. But why put him back in the world, knowing he used to be a hero cop, as the octopus puts it? Turning that kind of classic trope on its head, the villain here makes the hero, and unnecessarily causes all of his own problems. But again, is there supposed to be any actual logic to this movie? When critics wrote about it when it was first released, Many of them, when they got to the plot, wrote something along the lines of it doesn't matter, or it's impossible to navigate, or it's not important, or the plot? Who cares? It's a lot of fun to watch these actors run around in silly costumes, spewing nonsense and having a good time doing it. I'm never a proponent of turn your brain off and just enjoy the movie, but again, if it's doing this on purpose, I can enjoy it as a stupid farce. The problem is here, I'm not 100% sure. If the story really is supposed to matter, if on any level whatsoever we're supposed to relate to or sympathize with these characters, then it becomes a disaster. The two most developed characters, the Spirit and Sans Serif, are completely materialistic. Neither has a real character arc, neither has a real opportunity for change, and despite the death of the octopus, destroying the vase with the blood of Heracles, finding the Golden Fleece, they both wind up right back where they started at the end. It's 100% bona fide comic book world. Status quo is reset, leaving the story open for someone else to come in next week and write another comic about the exact same characters doing the exact same things. Even the octopus can go right back to normal, despite the token the villain has to die in a comic movie scene, because Silken Floss finds his moving finger at the end and is presumably planning to reanimate him. I think Miller is even commenting on this idea that in the traditional comic book world, nothing ever really changes and the characters never really change either, when Silken Floss says, we'll start from scratch. 
if you come back for another adventure, everything will be just as it was. None of this really matters. The spirit in Sand Seraph are both obsessed with objects. The spirit treats women as objects, and Sand is infatuated with expensive jewelry. As teenagers, they seemed as though they might grow up and become more than that, but tragedy seems to have trapped them in perpetual shallowness. Sand's father was a cop shot dead in the street, and because Denny wants to grow up and become a cop himself, she panics, saying she hates cops, that she's too good for this hellhole that is Central City, and she runs away, leaving Denny behind with him in his anger shouting that he hates her as she leaves. She chooses shiny things, becoming a master thief, and Denny chooses to protect the city she called the hellhole. It's interesting that in his commentary, Miller says the red behind her is supposed to represent her descending into hell. Clearly he agrees with Denny and loves this city, despite her having a point about how dangerous and filthy it is. They couldn't find happiness in each other, so they cling to the material, the things they love, and of course, they don't find true happiness in them either. They find each other again later, but are on opposite sides of the law, and in the end, she still chooses shiny things, and he still chooses his one true love, the city. Neither grows, neither learns anything. Sure, this is all a very comic book, but it's hard to see them as real adults because they continue to act like children. My point is that enough time is spent developing these characters, and the movie goes out of its way to get brilliant young actors who look perfect in their roles, that I start to wonder if this really is just a farce. If it isn't, there are too many moments it slows down for emotional beats that just don't work. Another example is Ellen. She constantly calls the spirit a bastard, but still gives him the time of day, and seems ultimately fine with him hitting on every girl in the city, even though she tells him she's not. In the commentary, Frank Miller says she's too busy as a doctor to settle down, just as the spirit is, but that doesn't seem clear from what we're given. If the idea is that the spirit has to put the city first, and she has to put her patients first, so they can never really be together and they just play games because of that, okay, but she's a working woman who obviously sees women as equals with men. It's hard to buy that she'd be okay with him treating her like this. Gabriel Mack does fine with the material, I think, but the spirit isn't much of a superhero. He only seems to save women, and since he sees them all as objects, it's hard to see him as doing anything but protecting his collection. It would be like calling Sans Serif a superhero for saving a priceless piece of jewelry. Why a hero is heroic does matter. I wonder if his obsession with his city, a place that really is filthy and full of crime has everything to do with the women in it. And the spirit never accomplishes anything due to his own skill or intellect or savvy. He has superpowers and came back to life because of the octopus. There has to be more to him than that. Well, he's a detective, but the trouble is, this isn't really a detective story. I mean, we know who the villains are and what their motivations are in the first 20 minutes. Sand wants the golden fleece because it's rare and shiny, and the octopus wants the blood of Heracles because he thinks it'll make him immortal. So now we just have to watch the spirit try to piece all this together and then learn his origins, which, for no good reason, really, the octopus has suddenly decided to start dropping hints about, even though they've apparently fought endless times before and he's never said anything about it. But all the detective work that happens in the movie is either extremely easy or done by other people. He finds the locket he gave Sans Serif at the scene of the octopus's first crime. Well, that's brilliant. Of course he knows who it is. His picture is in the locket. The peppy go-getter rookie, Morgenstern, who's maybe my favorite character in the movie next to the octopus, finds salt on the shoes of the man Sand convinces to commit suicide in his own office, which leads the spirit to the octopus's hideout. The one real piece of important detective work, and not only does he not do it, he gets it from Morgenstern on his cell phone while he's hanging off that ledge and his pants are falling off. And it wouldn't have been all that impressive anyway, even if he had figured out that clue, considering the octopus wanted to lure him to his lair in the first place 
place and the whole thing was a trap. Also, I'm never really afraid that the spirit is in any real danger because he's come back to life once and is nearly impossible to kill. And then he almost dies and comes back a second time kind of takes the thrill out of the danger. In his commentary, Frank Miller does very little to clear up what his intentions are. He's obviously happy with the movie he made, and although his producer, Deborah Delpreet, spends a lot of time talking about how heroic the spirit is and why there's naturally emotional weight to Denny Colt and Sans Serif, I guess just because the flashbacks of them as kids are played as sad and tragic, Frank Miller himself doesn't tell us what we're supposed to take away from any of this. He talks about coming up with insane ideas for scenes and hoping the rest of the production would go along with them. He talks about his own fascination with New York City and with women, and he talks about Denny Cole on those terms. He does come out and say that the spirit really won't settle down with one woman because he sees the city as the one female he's completely devoted to. But he didn't need to tell us that. It's right there in the spirit's internal monologue at the end. And it's less of an identifiable theme and more of a tribute to the loves of the man who made the movie. He does talk about things he can't explain, like why the octopus is so fixated on eggs. He just thought it was funny, so he makes it a running gag. And I'm glad he explained that, because I was all set to look for some connection to cloning and embryos and such. Nope. It's just random. And that's fine. Again, it's not for everyone, but I don't need every movie to be a perfect, cohesive piece that serves as a fascinating exploration of the human condition or provides meaningful social commentary. I mean, I love that, but as always, what matters to me most is what the film has set out to be and if it's successful at that. If it is successful at what it wants to do, it's up to me to decide if, personally, the movie is for me. But I can still critically look at it on its own terms. What kills the spirit is that nobody can decide what its terms are. If only it had been advertised as a comedy rather than something that just looked like Sin City, people's expectations may have been different and viewers may have enjoyed it more. Our expectations play a part in how we perceive and what we think of an entertainment, and we like to get what we paid for. I was able to adjust to the bizarre quirkiness of it eventually, and once I acknowledged it wasn't what I thought I went to see, I had a good time. But the trailer sold us a gritty, stylized, serious crime drama, and that's not what we got. Frank Miller took a lot of liberties with the spirit, and although Will Eisner was his mentor and they were friends, and although he put a lot of visual and dialogue homages to Eisner in his movie, he is really a very different character. I suspect Miller's movie is much more of a joke than Eisner probably would have wanted it to be, though from what I can gather, there was quite a bit of quirky and dark humor in the comic strips. In his commentary, Miller talks about Eisner with reverence and is quick to point out how similar his visual style is to what Eisner drew, and how he does a lot of approximations of his characters for the screen. For example, he didn't think he could get away with never showing more than the octopus's arm on screen as he's portrayed in the comics, and instead of making him an actual master of disguise, he decided to nod to that idea by having the octopus wear a lot of outlandish costumes, but not to actually disguise himself. What baffles me is why, apparently while concerned about doing Eisner's greatest creation justice, Miller changes the basic premise and turns it into just one more overly powerful superhero brought back to life after death. Now, I didn't know anything about this character prior to seeing the movie, and so none of this bothered me while I watched it the first time, but I can completely sympathize with fans of Eisner who cried foul on Miller for taking Eisner's character and turning it into his own playground, dropping out a lot of what made the spirit unique. He's often considered the first working-class superhero, a guy without a lot of resources who has to rely solely on his expertise, his quick wit, and all the while, yes, taking advantage of an unusual circumstance. But the situation of everyone thinks I'm dead rather than actually 
having him dead and brought back to life makes his alter ego less literal and instantly says something about his smarts and his willingness for self-sacrifice. This is a guy who I actually would buy cares more about his city and the people in it than himself. In the movie, the spirit comes off like he fights because he has to, because he doesn't know what he is. He can't go back to his real life because he's not even sure he's human anymore. And he helps the police because A, he has nothing better to do, and B, if you used to be a cop, what else would you do with super strength? There's little point in adapting source material just for the sake of visuals. Why not keep the character true to what he was if what he was is more interesting and what you want to change him into is more of the same? We have enough undead heroes. Ironically, as old as the spirit is, we haven't really seen a lot of heroes like him on screen yet. And it's also unfortunate that it isn't more faithful to the source material, given that various producers and studios have been looking at a spirit adaptation since the 1970s. As much as I enjoy this movie as silly escapist nonsense, and as much fun as I found it to see what insanity Frank Miller would throw at a movie screen if taken totally off the leash, I would absolutely not be opposed to seeing a movie based on the spirit's original concept. Miller has some great ideas he takes a bit too far. The time period is supposed to be present day, but with a lot of older elements, Miller explains in his commentary. So while everyone drives cars out of the 40s and they talk a lot like they're in the 40s, they also all carry cell phones and people do business over the internet. I love the idea of an ambiguous time period you can't place, and I'm even cool with the quirkiness of having modern tech in a noirish piece, but I think it would have been more effective to keep the period ambiguous rather than try to make it a present day that looks like the past. I didn't pick up on that idea right away, and I was instantly taken out when I started catching modern pop culture references. A movie that looks like this, even with cell phones and such, should stand up years from now. I think it's a mistake to have such dated references in something like this. I suppose the references to Superman and Batman and Robin are part of Miller's joking about the comic world and the industry, and he does have a ton of that outside of just Eisner stuff, too. Silk and Floss's van at the end says Ditko's delivery on the side. But I draw the line at, he was dead. Dead as Star Trek. Now, I know what you're thinking, and no, I wasn't offended by that because I'm a Star Trek fan. In the theater, I thought it was absolutely hilarious. At the time, it was true. It was 2008. Enterprise went off the air three years earlier. It was falling totally out of modern relevance. But then, a year later, an extremely popular movie revitalized the Star Trek franchise, and now that line means nothing to someone who isn't aware of what was going on in entertainment at the moment the movie was made. This is maybe the strangest movie I've reviewed so far because I just don't know what exactly to make of it. I really don't want to analyze it and pick it apart. It almost convinces me it's not meant to be thought of that way, and Samuel Jackson, Scarlett Johansson, isn't that ironic seeing them together in 2008? And Louis Lombardi as all those clones are so entertaining and just hilarious. Everybody in the movie is having a great time and they're all fantastic and not letting the green screen mess with the illusion of their performances. This movie is great on the level of kids playing make-believe in the backyard, as Scarlett Johansson describes it in the special features, it falls totally apart as real dramatic narrative. What's this movie really about? What is Frank Miller saying with a guy who can't die because death is a woman and he can't be with just one? What is he saying with a man who loves a city more than people? Perhaps, in a way, he's revealing more about himself than in any of his previous work. I don't think this movie is about anything except Frank Miller giving us a tour inside of his own mind. Not really something everyone would want to see, and clearly not the most marketable venture. And looking at it like that, it's really no wonder that no one can rationally put together exactly what the heck is going on here, both above and below the surface. In a tour of Frank Miller's mind, that's about what I would have expected. I'm giving The Spirit a 2 out of 4. Let fearless thoughts emerge.
Soon.